Good morning and welcome to Zion Presbyterian Church. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Just a few announcements for you. As always, children are welcome and encouraged to stay in our worship service. But if you do wish, we have a nursery available for infants to three years old. You can head out the doors behind me to your right, um, and the nursery is directly back there. If you're visiting with us today, we're so thankful that you're here. If you could help us out and fill out a visitor card in your pew rack, that would be great. And then you can also find out more about Zion on page 20 of your worship guide. Um, The Spring Hill Church Plant is hosting a weekly Bible study on Sunday nights at the Spring Hill Academy Preschool. They start with a potluck meal at 5, followed by a Bible study at 6. If you know someone in the Spring Hill area who's looking for a church or needs to be reached by the gospel, please let us know so that we can get them that information. Um, Reminder that there will be no adult Christian education today. Um, Young children, you'll still have your regular Sunday school classes. Um, The rose on the pulpit this morning is in honor of Pepper Alford, daughter of TJ and Casey Alford. Um, We're so thankful Pepper's here with us this morning, and she's the daughter of Jim and Kathy Mullery. We'll be hosting uh, a simulcast of the Empower to Connect conference. If you have adopted children or foster children or are interested in adoption, this event will be highly beneficial. Um, There's more details available about that conference in your worship guide. Um, Parents of our youth, We'll be having a brief parents' meeting today at 11.15 in the borough. Um, High school and middle school students, you're welcome to join us for that meeting. Um, But if you have youth children, I would highly encourage you to be there as we discuss some changes going on in our youth ministry. Um, If you have fourth and fifth graders and your children will be coming up into that age group in a year or so, you're also welcome to join to hear about Um, some updates in our youth ministry. A reminder that tonight we're having corporate prayer. We'll be having a meal together at 6 p.m. in the Brown Fulton and then followed by prayer together at 7 p.m. And lastly, I want to ask Chris Moon to come up and make our final announcement this morning. Good morning. Just a little note from the music corner. There's a lot going on, but something I wanted to uh, underscore. Hopefully this week, most of you or all of you have received a letter about some hymnals that we would like to purchase for the kids in the kids choirs um there's a great little flyer that i took off of the bulletin board (laughs) outside but um what we're doing uh kind of as a token of encouragement to our kids um we'd like to purchase about 25 hymnals that are uh, specific for each of these kids and have their names engraved on it that they can take home with them. They can put it on their bookshelves when they're adults. When they, they come to church, they can bring it with their Bible and, uh, and just have, a, have something um, that they can hold and take home uh, that just says, we encourage you in what you're doing. Music's important to us, and uh, uh, we would like you to have this. Um, several of you have already um, brought it to my attention that you'd like to, to sponsor one of these hymnals. They're $35, and uh, we've got about four or five that have just kind of casually mentioned it to me, but we're looking for 25, so if, 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 if you feel led to do this, please don't let it detract from anything that you, you normally give to or your regular tithe, but uh, just let me or Kitty know, and, uh, and we'll put your name down, and we'll get these hymnals ordered and distributed, and uh, part, of the, part of this also is um, 
when I was a kid, somebody gave me a hymnal just like this, and they wrote in the cover uh, a note of encouragement. And if you read the letter, uh, that guy called me every year at least once to encourage and pray with me on the phone until I graduated from college. And it was just, it wasn't at all what I had expected. Um, but if, if you do this, we'd like to ask you to commit to pray for the kids for uh, one year and, uh, and invite you to write something in the cover. And uh, I, I wish I could tell you that my hymnal was in great shape and I still have it, but thank goodness I wore that thing out. And, uh, and consequently, I probably owe a great deal of my love for music to, uh, to the encouragement I received as a kid in church. And so we have the opportunity to do that again. But anyway, $35. Um, we'll, we'll get those uh, distributed to you. You don't have to give me the name of a child, just that you want to do it, and let Kitty or I know, and we will take care of the rest. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Well, would you stand for our call to worship from Hosea chapter 6? When God comes to his people, he comes to refresh us, to revive us, to strengthen us, and the promise he's made throughout the scriptures is that when his people gather collectively on the Lord's day, he's here with us. And so hear him calling us from his word to worship from Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Let us know. Let's press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Amen. Please remain standing for our opening song before the throne of God above. For the throne Oh. 
Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27. This is God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, that would be Romans. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members, than that your whole body go into hell. Well, please be seated. One of the things we're committed to here at Zion is preaching through the, the Bible serially, whatever's next. Someone once asked me one time, like, uh, how do you decide what you're going to preach on next? I, said, I don't know, I get in on Monday morning, I open the Bible and I see what's next. Saw what was next this time and thought, all right, we're going to jump in. Um, it forces us, doing this forces us to value the things that Jesus values and not just to value the things that we might naturally value by ourselves. It shapes us. It shapes the conversations that we have. With that in mind, let me pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, bless your word today. Transform us by it. Make us, make the destitute places in our lives become like the Garden of Eden, like the, the place where the Lord dwells. And certainly, God, as we talk today about sex and lust, there are hidden places of our hearts that are very broken. And we need you to bring those into the light and show us. Show us what it means have Jesus as our great delight, as we just sung. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes um, Christians get accused of being too concerned with sex. And it's because the Bible's pro-sex. God created sex. He loves sex. Sex should be an act of worship. But some of the most vivid language that God uses to describe his relationship, his love for his people is, in fact, highly sexual language. You would blush if I were to read it to you today from the pulpit. It's beautiful language. Some of the most intimate terms describing a passionate, tender, intimate love that God has for his beloved people. But it's true, I think the accusation that the church at times is too concerned with sex. We elevate sex. We elevate it above other sins. Even though Jesus had more to say about money than he does sex, even though we're talking about that today because he's talking about it, he doesn't leave any area of our lives untouched, Jesus had more to say about money than about sex, and yet in the church, we have more to say about sex than about the dangers of sin, of coveting, and materialism. You can put this in context. 
We need to have that discussion more than this discussion, but we need to have this discussion because this is next. And I think we've, as a result of our becoming too infatuated, if you will, with sex, we've failed to develop even a significant theology of singleness for our single men and women, for our widows, for our widowers. We've developed, we've not developed a, an adequate theology teaching on singleness because we're so concerned, enamored with marriage and sexuality. And yet Jesus was the most fully alive individual to ever walk on the face of this. No one flourished in this life more than Jesus. He was a single man who never had sex. It was probably, I think, because we've made sex into an idol in the church. The world has crept into the church and set our agenda. We live in an overly sexualized culture, and that is not just finger-pointing on the outside. This is as prevalent in our lives as anywhere else. Pornography, for instance, not just rampant symptom of a problem of an over-sexualized culture. It is a problem in and of itself. A study realized, least, sorry, a study released last year, this is current, showed that 8 out of 10 men between the ages of 18 and 30, 80% of the men between ages 18 and 30 viewed pornography at least monthly. 66% of men viewed it weekly. Those stats, by the way, don't drop a lot when we're talking about Christians. We live in an overly sexualized culture. It's crept into our hearts. This is a problem that we deal with. Lest you think it's simply a young man's problem, 50%, same study, found 50% of men between the ages of 50 and 68 were dealing with it monthly. At least monthly. At least monthly. Not a male problem either, right? The overly sexualized culture is crept not just, this is not a man's problem. We're all broken sexually. We're all broken in many ways. One of the which the ways that sin has affected us is in our Sexuality. It's not a male problem either. An article in Christianity Today tells the story of many women who became addicted to pornography. One of them, Rachel, nine years old, when she first got hooked. And this is her recounting of it. A few days before I found it, some friends were giggling about this thing called sex. I searched for it on Google, came up countless links to pornographic websites. I clicked many of them. The screen was soon covered with explicit pop-ups. A flood of intense shame came over me, and I wanted more. 2007, okay, this is a 10-year-old study. 2007, the Nielsen Group found that approximately 13 Amer million American women clicked on pornographic websites every month. It's not a man's problem. Lust is a huge problem. I don't think we know how to deal with it. And this shouldn't surprise us. Sin corrupts, grace restores. You can just write that as a banner over your life. Put it on your license plate if you're trying to figure out what to put on your license. Sin corrupts, grace restores. Everyone in this room, regardless of age or gender, is sexually broken. And Jesus is so concerned with sexual sin because it is a corruption of God's good design. He loves sex. He created it. It should be an act of worship. 
So why Jesus making such a big deal? Because he paints this in such stark, sobering terms. Why make this such a big deal? Well, he starts out with the seventh commandment. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I mean, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfillment. The law was very specific. Adultery is worthy of death. It was a capital crime in ancient Israel. This is how God feels about adultery. And when Jesus encounters a woman caught in adultery who is fixing to be stoned because they're applying the law to him, Jesus says, ah, the law's wrong. He says, look, he doesn't say that she doesn't deserve that. He says, says, look, you all deserve it. First one, cast the stone. First one, not guilty of this crime. And they put him down, they walk away. Adultery is, we have to see, I think we have to see it this way. It's never an isolated offense. It's not just like this isolated thing that we can put in a, a, a closet. It violates many of God's commands. It is theft, right? You're taking what doesn't belong to you. Sex, even sex outside of marriage doesn't belong to you, not your body. At a deeper level, it's coveting. You take what you don't first desire. You never take what you don't first desire. And if you're taking and using sex outside the context in which God's designed it, then you are taking because you inappropriately desire. You're inappropriately using something. It makes sex an ultimate thing, right? Adultery breaks the first commandment. It turns sex into an idol. And I think we, we need to keep this as we're talking about this. We need to keep this as a, as a basic orientation. Because right? we're wanting to do more than just say, quit lusting. That's not effective, right? If I just said, stop lusting or you're going to hell, you would stop lusting for a little bit and then you would move on. We need something more significant. So I think we need to develop this a little bit further and hear this. Sex is never about sex. Sex is always about the fulfillment of a greater desire. It's never less than physical, but it's always more than physical. And that's because we have been made as embodied souls. We look to do things with our body that satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. The church, the church, I think, has been guilty of this. We, we kind of undervalue the body. We've tended at times to treat it like it's an extra appendage, like it's the soul that really matters. We can depend, dispense with the body and it doesn't really affect us. It's not biblical. The Bible doesn't separate the physical and the material together. Both are created by God. And in the broadest sense of the word, both the body and the soul are physical, or sorry, spiritual things. In the broadest sense of the use of that word. So God created us body and soul, and this is important. This is important when addressing the problem of adultery and lust. God created us in such a way that our bodies are important and what is invisible must be made visible what is intangible must be made tangible what's done in the body affects the soul as well the reason jesus cares so much about sexual faithfulness here and other places is because sin is corrupting our desires sexual sin is destroying our hearts Maybe a clear way of seeing this is what's done in the body. It does affect the soul is when someone is physically or sexually abused. It affects them at the deepest possible level. Their soul, deep in their soul, they're, they're deeply wounded. And so sex is designed to express an invisible truth. 
right? It's meant in a sacramental way. The invisible love between a husband and a wife, the covenant that is that they have made, the vows that they made to belong to one another for the rest of their lives are meant to be expressed in physical ways in the context of marriage because sex has power. It needs to be used because it's so powerful in its proper context. And the reason it is so seductive, pun intended, is because God has created it with incredible amount of staying power. Sex is like superglue, right? It holds things together. I mean, in fact, the studies that are being shown right now by brain scans is that the, the, the chemicals that are released in sex are meant to do two things. Cause us to forgive one another and to bond to one another. Two things that are essential for a healthy marriage. But like super glue, you better make sure that what you're gluing together with sex is meant to be glued forever. You don't want to glue your fingers together with super glue. It is painful when you rip them apart. Now, students, you can understand, singles, you can understand why God intends for sex to be in the context of marriage. What's bound together by sex is meant to stay together forever. What's done in the body is meant to enhance one's life. It is designed with power. So let me get back to the point. Sex is never about sex, precisely because it is so powerful. And so this is what Jesus is saying to us here. If you don't deal with lust, it will destroy your lives because God designed it with such immense power. So, how do we change? Here's the problem. The problem needs to be changed. How do we change? This is such a powerful drive in all of us, men and women, not just men. This is such a powerful drive that anyone who has tried to curb it quickly found themselves defeated and overwhelmed. Falled into sin and immense guilt and shame immediately flooded in. Which creates this cycle, right? Now I return to sex to deal with the problem of shame. Sex is never about sex. And so Jesus uses a formula that he's been developing. You have heard it said, and then he quotes the law, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Again, he doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't get rid of it. He raises the bar on what the law requires so that we might see the true evil in our hearts. So that the law is like an MRI, right? The doctor says, look, there's a cancer. You can't see it. I'm going to do a deep scan on you because this thing needs to be eradicated, needs to be exacted from your hearts. And this is often the problem. We almost dismiss our sins. Not that big of a deal. Like a cancer patient who might just say, it's just a headache. Do a deep scan. The MRI exposes it's much worse. You are being eaten from the inside out. And this is what Jesus says. Look, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, right? He's raising the bar, exposing it. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is what he's saying to us. You're much worse than you realize. You can't point fingers. No one in this room can point fingers at sexual sin in someone else and say, you're wrong, shouldn't be doing that. 
Jesus said, look, this is just, I've just leveled the playing field. You all have this problem. We all have this problem in our hearts. You're much worse than you realize. And the degree to which you see your brokenness is the degree to which your heart will be satisfied because when you see your brokenness deep, you automatically run outside of yourself. You're not pulling out a penknife to deal with a brain tumor. You're not going to try to do this on your own. You will run to somebody else. Please eradicate this. Fix this. And so Jesus is saying, look, I don't intend for you to rescue yourself from this problem. You've got to go outside. I'm going to show you how deep it is. It's in your heart. It's got its tangles all over your heart. Go outside of yourselves. I have these projects around my house that I know are way above my head. If I were to try to fix certain things, I would most likely make a much bigger mess. And so I hire that out. Go take care of this. I can't fix this. And you know what? I appreciate I appreciate even more. I love even more the people who take care of my problems for me when I know how big of a mess I would make. So Jesus digs around and exposes just how broken we are because he wants us to see this is not a self-help project. The problem of lust that runs so deep doesn't need a little tweak and a little greater effort on our part. It needs death and resurrection. The power of sex can only be broken by the greater power of Jesus. And so he digs at the desire level because this is where the struggle is. So Jesus gives us a method here for dealing with this problem, a way out of our addiction to sex and a way out of our sexual brokenness. And while he's dealing with lust here, this can be applied to any. The way out of all addiction is the same. He gives us five antidotes for the lustful heart. And again, these are all for, for, you can really apply these for all sin. Jesus doesn't sort of put this like, here's sex, you need to deal with it this way, and here's every other sin. He's like, look, this has the same problem. It's at the desire level, so let's get at the desire level. And and I want you to see me transform you from the inside out. I want you to take this desolate place of your life, and I want to break that power with the greater power of my gospel. So it gives us five antidotes. First, get aggressive. That's what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus is in ancient Hebrew, right? Ancient Hebrews repeated things for emphases. Often they built on each other. This is his way of saying, look, you got to get aggressive. Cut, instead of saying, look, just cut yourself off from what tempts you, he goes deep. If a doctor said to you, your, your leg's infected and we need to amputate it or you're going to die you would be forced to ask yourself a question. Do I love this leg more than my entire life? Is my leg my whole body, or is it just a dispensable part of me? Your sin will kill you if you do not amputate it. If, you, if you're tempted when you get on the computer, be aggressive. Don't get on the computer. I mean, that sounds drastic, doesn't it? If you're wondering, how am I going to live my life without a computer? You're asking the wrong question. The better question is, how can I live my eternal life in the burning fire of hell? That's what's at stake here. If you're tempted when you watch a particular show on TV, cut off that show and get rid of your TV altogether if necessary. 
For it is better to lose HBO or to go to a good movie than to have your lusting body go to hell. Which leads us to our second point. First is get aggressive. Second, don't be afraid of fear. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And he says it again twice for effect. You see, Jesus is putting things into perspective here. It's easy to let our pet sins seem like they're just not that big of a deal. And so Jesus is putting perspective. He's changing our point of reference. These are hell-deserving sins that you're keeping as a little pet. Jesus is making sin ugly by showing us what it leads to. If you think it leads to pleasure and satisfaction, you'll entertain lust in your heart all day long. But if you think it leads to the fires of hell and the anger of God, it will start to lose its luster. Matthew Henry, the Puritan pastor, says this, this way. He says, there are some sins that we need to be saved from with fear. When we are tempted to think it hard to deny ourselves and to crucify fleshly lusts, we ought to consider how much harder it will be to lie forever in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Third, so be aggressive. Don't be afraid of fear. It could keep you from particular sins. Third, know the progression. And the progression goes like this. What the eye sees stirs the desires. And the research is overwhelming on the addictive power of pornography and sex. When the eye sees pornography, the brain is actually rewired in response to the chemicals that are released to keep us coming back. It creates an addiction cycle. What the eye sees affects deeply our desires. And so Jesus warns us, look, the eye is the lamp of the body. What enters the eye stirs the heart. It creates affection. So when David fell into sin with Bathsheba, he first saw her. When Samson fell with Delilah, Judges 16, he first saw her. And both followed their eyes into sin. The eyes are the gateway to the affections. So students, young women, I want you to hear this. I want you to listen to me. What you wear has the power to arouse the desires of your brothers in Christ. Even some of your sisters who might struggle with same-sex attraction. But you, we have to be we have to be cautious about what we wear. You are responsible for helping them guard their eyes by wearing modest clothes. You're responsible. You have you bear a responsibility in not stirring their desires. Instead of thinking, do I look good in this? You should be instead thinking, will this incite lust through the eyes of those who see me? But Jesus goes further here. He talks in verse 28, those who look at a woman with lustful intent. Right? It's not just that we see sexual stuff, though the eye, what we see with the eye stirs the desires. It's not just that we see he's going after the deep intent of arousing sexual desires through our eyes. Jesus knows us so well. It's not just the power of the glance. It's the purpose of the glance. Why am I looking? The heart that uses the eye with the intent of stirring up lust in one's heart. Again, Matthew Henry says it this way. Feeding the eye with the sight of the forbidden fruit 
not only looking for that end, like just not just not looking just to get the forbidden fruit itself, but looking so that I might lust. Again, sex is never just about sex. It's always about something more. But looking until I do lust is the problem that Jesus is after. Or looking to gratify the lust. Whether, where further satisfaction cannot be attained. So we look up a movie with the intent of stirring a desire. Like I'm, this is what happens. It's not I just like, oops, how did that happen? But oftentimes, Jesus say, look, here's what you do. You're using it with the intent of creating lust to satisfy your heart. We Google with the intent of stirring that desire. Go looking for it. See the ad and I might click on it, but before I click on it, I know I want to click on that because I want something from it. Jesus knows us. He knows us as our creator. He's condescended so tenderly to this design. If the design is what the eye sees stirs the desire, he has condescended so tenderly to this design of ours. Is this not what we just did with baptism and what we do with the Lord's Supper where he says what the eye sees stirs the desire. So I want you to see my love for you. You've fallen into sexual sin. You've committed adultery. I want you to see in baptism and the Lord's Supper that I've covered that sin. I want you to see that you are forgiven because I've shed my blood. I want you to see you're a new person and you can say no to this because what the eye sees stirs the desire. So he says, I want you, I want you to see this. I want you to see this visibly. Faith, it's different than sight, but it's not deficient of sight. Fourth, so be aggressive. Don't be afraid of fear. Know the progression, what the eye sees, the heart desires. And then fourth, don't give God substitutes. Right? This, is, this is often what we try to do. Instead, don't give God substitutes. Repent and turn back to the one who loves you. And we tend to want to get the easy way out. Right? I'm gonna, I, I've fallen into sin. I've lusted. Again, this is not a male problem. Men and women problem. I've lusted. Give God. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to double down on my efforts at Bible reading. I'm going to go serve the poor. I'm going to go tell someone about the gospel. But never willing to make the definitive break with sin. You can't have both. This is where God often brings marriage and sex to talk about his love for us. To try to have sin and God. He's like he's trying to have a wife and a mistress at the same time. The two are in direct competition with each other for your deepest affections. He's so jealous for our affections, so deeply in love with us that he will not allow us to have both. He will fight for the hearts of his people until repentance puts away the mistress of our sin. Now this is the irony of lust. What we lust after will never love us back with a satisfying love. Ever. The object of your lust will only steal from you and make you give more and more and more and more until you are dying under its weight. But Jesus will cherish you as his bride, adorn you with his garments, embrace you with his love, and his love will set your heart at ease. It will give you the pleasure that you long for. So much of lust is lust is just a hunger to be embraced at our worst. Cover myself up. 
true for men and women. The gospel says to us, this is what the gospel says, Jesus knows who, who you really are. He'll take you at your worst, and he'll love you with his best. Which leads us to our last antidote for lusting hearts. Seek satisfaction. I think this is the most underdeveloped approach to dealing with sexual sin, any sin, any addiction, the desire, the hunger for satisfaction, I think is the most underutilized tool in this fight. I mean, addiction, if it triggers the pleasure centers of the brain, that's why it's so powerful. That's why lust, why sex is so powerful. It triggers the pleasure centers of the brain. And that's why we jones after that next text message, right? Because it too triggers the pleasure centers. We are designed for pleasure and satisfaction. And when I get that next satisfaction, it drops dopamine, and all of a sudden, I'm on a high. Or the next Instagram like gets me going because it's hitting the pleasure centers of our brain. We were made for satisfaction. And it's why the drug addict often feels so out of control. And why, if you're just trying to hold back a lustful heart, it will always break through. It is a desperately hungry beast that longs to be satisfied. You can't hold that back. Our brains themselves, our entire bodies are hardwired for satisfaction. But here's the thing. The created thing can never satisfy it's too small. It's too insignificant. Remember, sex is never about sex. We use sex to get satisfaction for what our hearts really want. A heart that's already satisfied, as a result, doesn't go looking for satisfaction through sex or lust. So in those moments when I'm so tempted, I can then look at the gospel with the eyes of my heart and the pleasure centers of my brain will do light up but in a way that satisfies that no pleasure can. For the pleasure of God's love is what I hunger for the most. See, this is the way the gospel comes into this, right? If sex is never about sex, it's always about something else. What I can then say when my heart begins to lust is whatever I long for, I already have in Christ. If I look to sex because I want to be endured and embraced, then I can look to Jesus and sees, he sees me at my worst. He takes adulterers and murderers to himself. And he says, I'll love you for the rest of eternity. No one else, everyone else will want you to be somebody different than you already are. I will love you and embrace you at your worst. If I look to sex to gain accolades for my performance, then the Father already adores me in Christ because I had the righteousness of the one who performed completely on my behalf. I already measure up. If I look to sex for security, then Jesus says, I have the eternal love of the Father who said, I look, I've numbered the hairs on your head. You don't have to give yourself away to somebody else. I love you and will not stop loving and I'll give you my good gifts. Everything that I have, I'll give to you. Could you be more secure than in my love? You don't need to go, look, sex is never about sex. So look, let me close with this. A little pain now will increase the appetite 
for the love of your Savior. Sex is no refuge for us. Lust will not keep its promises. It cannot do what you're asking, what we are asking for it to do. Instead, hear the words of Jesus. Keep yourselves pure, for your bridegroom is coming, and he will bring his people, his bride, into his new home. And one thing you will know for the rest of your life, the rest of eternity, is the satisfaction of his love. Turn away from your lustful hearts and turn towards your singing Savior who sings songs of delight over you. Where sex always takes away from us, Jesus gave himself for our satisfaction. Let's pray. A relentless love embraced my soul. Love that was undeserved, unknown, deep and vast. It's what we just sang. An unbounded love, an unfailing love. Father, I pray for those who have fallen into pornography and adultery. And the shame and the guilt is overwhelming them. Remind them that Jesus is a refuge. For those who are currently stuck in the pattern, break it with your relentless love. Don't let us rest until we are willing to excise it from our hearts. Help us to be aggressive with it. And pray for our students, that you would guard them, protect them from the evil one who would love to catch them in this particular snare. God, may we no longer look to satisfy our hearts with this very powerful thing, may we instead be satisfied with Jesus who is enough. Help us, we pray, towards this end so that you would receive the praise as one who is greater than any of our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.